world is on fire. Near Scottsdale, Arizona, 2,500 acres of parched land are on fire. Four people have died in Italy as the country continues to deal with wildfires. But the most intense blazes here have turned the skies a bright amber. We're coming to the end of what has been a devastating summer of wildfires in the Northern Hemisphere. Much of the destruction is in the historic town of Lahaina. More than 270 structures have been damaged. Hundreds of people are still unaccounted for at this hour. They include the elderly and children. And there are massive evacuations in Greece. Wildfires have forced thousands of tourists and residents to flee. Greece has been sweltering under a lengthy spell of extreme heat with daily temperatures well above 40 degrees. So far this year, 13.4 million hectares of land has burned from wildfires. That's more than six times the 10-year average. Canada has seen 5,500 fires release emissions equivalent to more than 1 billion tonnes of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. But down here in New Zealand, we're not immune. Well, scientists are warning the increasing number of bushfires around the world could make climate change worse and fire management techniques need a rethink. Fire danger is projected to increase by an average of 70% by 2040. We know because we've been burned before. Kaimomo residents are glad to be back home after a wildfire came within 200 metres of their far north town. 130 people have been evacuated from a woodend campground after a wildfire started at about 8 o'clock last night. Dozens of homes have been destroyed by a savage wildfire in the Mackenzie Basin, which forced residents to flee for their lives early yesterday morning. At least 20 houses in Lake Oho Village have been damaged or destroyed by the huge fire, which was fanned by strong westerly winds as it tore through pine forests and tussock grass. Kia ora, I'm Sarah Robson and today on The Detail, with El Nino on our doorstep and parts of the country in for a hotter, drier summer, are we prepared for the threat of wildfires? David Bowman is a professor of pyrogeography and fire science at the University of Tasmania in Hobart. Not the first place you think of when it comes to bushfire risk in Australia. He spoke to our co-host, Tom Kitchen. Hobart's actually exciting pyrogeographically for all of the wrong reasons. There's a big mountain and it's covered in very dense eucalyptus forest. And in 1967, the entire mountain uh, caught fire and burnt into the suburbs of Hobart. But the temperature rose to over 100, 104, and the winds got up to 74 mile an hour gusts and they were hot and they were dry. The fire blackens 1,000 square miles of country. Hobart was very nearly burnt to the ground and there was a wind change and it blew the fire away from the city. And because 1967 is a long time ago, many people who even reside in Hobart weren't born then. So it's like there's this amazing amnesia. They don't even know that they're probably in the world's most dangerous city or a wildfire disaster. And now we've got climate change bearing down on us. We've seen people running for their lives in Hawaii and in Greece, twice in Greece now. And so that's telling us something about what's happening on planet Earth with extreme fires. If we look at Hawaii, we look at Greece. Is there any kind of clear reason as to why those fires started and where they started? Well, I think both of those are really good examples. They're they're dysfunctional landscapes in terms of fire 
In the Mediterranean, obviously incredibly sustained drying and warming, but there was an urban drift. And so the traditional Mediterranean landscapes, groves of olives and cork trees and and vineyards and crops. And that and that was quite a, a sort of a fireproof environment because I think quite a high population density of people in, in the country and they were burning things. And you know, it was it was a tradition. But of course, what happened after the Second World War, industrialization and some countries like Portugal and Spain were really wanted people to be cleared out of their rural environments and to industrialize, move into the cities. And what happened is all of those places became incredibly overgrown. You know, you can buy a cottage in these countries for pretty well nothing. Um, And they were effectively, villages were abandoned and then they just became overgrown. And then eventually that regrowth became a diabolical fuel type. And in the Hawaiian situation, it's a completely different scenario where the traditional Hawaiians used land, they had cultivated things and so on, but they were living on on country. And that all got disrupted and had plantations and the plantations got abandoned. And all of these, particularly African grasses, were introduced and they've just gone feral. And so the exact opposite happened in the, and it's happened across the Pacific actually, that these grasses enter into what's known as a grass fire cycle. It's the opposite process of what's happened in the Mediterranean. The grasses proliferate, they burn into woody vegetation, incinerate the woody vegetation, the woody vegetation's poorly adapted to fire, and then you just get more and more grass that feeds off the ash from the woody trees. There's no herbivores that are able to walk around. You know, I've been to Hawaii and you walk around on those volcanic soils, they're very rough. So, you know, it's difficult to imagine a livestock on steep slopes, very rocky. If we were going to look at this in New Zealand context, having a look at what's happened overseas, we obviously have had uh, our own terrible uh, bushfires. What could we do to try and prevent what has happened overseas? It's going to be really tough for you guys. It's going to be really tough because you don't have a strong tradition of burning country and fighting fires. Fire's just not a big factor. You know, the fires that occur are a a teeny little, you know, in Australian terms, they're pinpricks. But the problem is that New Zealand has got a lot of grass and it's also got a lot of plantations, uh, eucalypts and pine, and it's also got wild trees and, um, you know, which have escaped into the grasslands. And as you warm the climate, and the climate is going to warm very dramatically in New Zealand, those fuel types are going to become really challenging. And not too long ago, we saw what those fuels can do. The fire at Lake Oho in October 2020. A wildfire roared through Lake Oho Village early yesterday morning, spreading into nearby conservation land, farms and mountainsides. We got in touch with someone who lived through the disaster and is helping the community rebuild. Hi, I'm Viv Smith-Campbell. I live at the wonderful uh, location of Lake Oho, which is in the middle of the South Island in the Mackenzie country. You know, for many of us, the last time Lake Oho was in the news in a big way was 
as it was being hit by that devastating wildfire. On the right, almost totally unscathed. And then whatever was beside it, completely gone. Can you describe for us what it looks like there now? Yeah, it's quite hard to see evidence of it now. I mean, nature heals wonderfully. In terms of the community, we've got half of the houses that were destroyed, 44 houses destroyed, so 22 of those have been rebuilt. And um, we've had 15 new houses built in the village, so the place has been like a, a one big building lot. You know, you've all picking up the pieces, pitching in, rebuilding, rebuilding the community, rebuilding the landscape, rebuilding the environment. That's right. And that takes time. I mean, yes, the obvious scars sort of heal over, but the trauma and um, anxiety and everything that that people went through and and still affects people. Um, You know, you can build back your house and those sorts of things, which which is great, but building back that community and the feeling that people have is, to me, more important, actually, than the built environment. So in terms of that fire three years ago, what what was the vegetation that was burning and, I guess, fueling the fire? Wilding trees. Ah. Yeah, big problem. A short circuit on a power pole several kilometres from Lake Orho Village caused molten cement and metal to spray from the pole and onto the tinder-dried tussock below. The molten material would have been over 1,700 degrees and caused a fire which burned unnoticed for almost an hour. It's full of dry and dead fuel, dead tussock, dead grass, cut down trees, slash. It's a nightmare for us as neighbouring properties. We had... Uh, blocks of them to the west and northwest of the village and the fire started behind them and then the wind blew it through them and into the village and the fire scientists said that you know it was it was just um magnified the fire significantly having those wilding trees there sort of turbocharged it mm. basically they're so flammable and they just fired embers you know, firefighters that were here tell us they were dodging um, roof iron being blowing around, but also fist-sized glowing embers that were blowing off the wilding trees, you know, just lighting up areas. Most of them got burnt. Most of them have been removed. And the landowners are now working really hard to make sure that they don't grow back. Lake Orho has been a case study for New Zealand in building back better from wildfires from the trees we plant to how we work with our neighbours. There's a guy at Lincoln University who's got a plant barbecue. Yeah. (laughs) What's a plant barbecue? Well, it's quite interesting to look at. He's got a barbecue and he burns plants in it. (laughs) (laughs) To test their fire, fire resilience or otherwise, presumably. That's right. And they've got a brilliant wee video there um, starring Sam Whitelock as well, burning um, a bit of gorse and burning a bit of broadleaf. Gorse just goes up in flames and the broadleaf sort of smoulders. So as you can see, this is a great option to plant around your house because it eliminates a lot of the fire risk. These plants aren't fireproof, but it does reduce the risk and it slows down the spread of a wildfire. Some of the replanting that we've been doing around the village and the Conservation Trust has been doing, we've we've tried to you know incorporate that into our planting and and put the more fire resilient 
plants in places that would act as a firebreak. What are landowners doing in, I guess, those those areas that, that were burned? I mean, the, the big areas, they would never, yeah. you know, um, replant them. But the Conservation Trust, we've got an area um, next to the village that we're creating a native forest in. It was a burnt-out um, Douglas fir plantation. And um, we're certainly working with FEMS in terms of the green firebreak concept between the properties that adjoin it and, and the planting that we're doing. Can you explain what a green firebreak is? Well, that's using the plants that Lincoln, you know, put on their plant barbecue that don't burn so well. So the one I mentioned was um, the broadleaf, mm-hmm. um, things like um, corfi, um, Fivefinger, some of the Caprosma species. So these are the plants that have um, usually fleshier leaves and they don't have a strong sort of smell or they're not full of um, sort of oils or resins. Mm. So they're the low flammable ones. The high flammable ones, in, in contrast, are things like um, Aki Aki and Manuka Kanuka. Mm. Um, and they have lots of volatile oils in them and, you know, they'll burn really fiercely and just probably explode like the wilding pines do with resins and shoot out embers. Watching recently the terrible fires that they've had in Maui and Hawaii, those sort of things, which, you know, it does bring it back for people. We've been so fortunate. Our local council, the Waitaki District Council, just totally came in and supported us in terms of recovery and assisted people to rebuild. And they, they were great. They're really, really great. Fire and Emergency New Zealand Fens have equally been just wonderful. And have you know really come in at the ground level with us and talked about what the community needed and worked with us to do that. So some of the things that they've done with our input, they've produced a a little wildfire evacuation guide, which now is on every fridge <laughs> in every house in the community, and it's just really simple simple information about you know what to do if you see a fire and where to go and all those sort of things and it's you know just readily accessible and also fiends before the fire they've been doing this they come in every year and they give us some fire training and information this year they brought a whole lot of fire extinguishers and we all had a go at using a fire extinguisher (laughs) you know so it's great and so they're working on things like instituting a prohibited fire season around here we still have visitors and New Zealanders on holiday coming in and thinking they can have campfires. It's not really the thing to do in a high fire danger area. So there's been a lot of work going to sort of trying to change that behaviour, signs and visits to people and places that people camp. Another really important thing, and it's I think why this community was able to deal with the situation that we had, was that it's actually building that stronger community as well so that you know the people around, you know, you have contact with the community and the people here. And so when something does happen, you know, you know who might need a bit of a hand or, you know, you, you look at, you're looking out for each other. 
wildfires don't respect property boundaries. So you might do a perfect job on your property, but if your neighbor has lots of vegetation running rampant and, and there's a lot of fuel on their property that is basically going to serve as a threat to you, then maybe go have, have a conversation with them. Simon Wagner is a social scientist at Scion Research, looking at how people respond to wildfire risks. How aware are we of the risk of wildfires here in New Zealand and, and how seriously do we take it? If you'd asked me a couple of years ago, I probably would have said not very much, but um, I think that's changing. We did a survey in 2021 and we asked people to rank what threats they thought were the, the most severe in New Zealand. And wildfire was actually the second ranked. So it was much higher than I expected to see. But I think that's probably just because it was not long after the Oha fire and then, of course, the Australian 2019 summer wildfire. 33 lives lost, 3,000 homes destroyed, 1 billion animals killed, and an estimated 30 million hectares burned. You know, that was raising the people's perceptions quite a bit. Of course, being aware doesn't necessarily mean we're doing anything about it. As in that same survey, we found a very weak correlation between how much risk people perceive and how much action they actually took to do anything about that risk. So, um, you know, most people, when they're buying their house or they're renting or choosing where to build, they don't think about wildfire risk at all. So what are we doing here in New Zealand in terms of planning or actions to mitigate that risk? And who's responsible for doing that? Well, unfortunately, the answer is not enough, uh, not nearly enough. Uh, very few of the councils have done anything in terms of putting specific policies and rules into their uh, plans about wildfire. It's not usually listed as something to be considered in a consenting decision. It's not included in limb reports typically. So it's been kind of in there vaguely within the RMA, but not actually implemented in a concrete way. And so all these decisions from the past are kind of catching up with us, where we've built houses and developments in areas where they maybe shouldn't have been built. And now we have to deal with that. I, we, but I want to be like empathetic with the councils as well, because they're not really supported to do what they need to do to protect people as well. For example, in Australia and in the US, if you want to build a house in a, in a high-risk area, then you have to meet higher standards for building. Choose better materials, choose better designs to make sure that your house is a little bit safer than it would be in a normal situation. We don't have anything like that here. And in fact, the building code seems to suggest that you that the councils are not allowed to impose any higher uh, rules when somebody applies for a consent. So they're they're kind of in a bind with that. They have to compete against other needs. In many areas, they have to protect native species like kanuka and manuka, which are highly flammable. And so they can't be telling people to go and clear all the kanuka and manuka from around their house. Mm. And, you know, it puts them in a hard position. So I don't want to just make it sound like the council is doing a terrible job. The councils are, you know, they're, they're fighting with some challenging problems here. But councils aren't the only ones that need to be thinking about wildfire risk. We do too. If you're choosing to live in a place that has a single act access road one way in and out, and it's up a steep hill surrounded by beautiful Kanuka and Manuka vegetation, um, perhaps like a windy little narrow road, and you're choosing a house that's nestled, tucked in and amongst this vegetation, that looks beautiful. And I totally understand why somebody would be drawn to a place like that. But that comes with a serious risk, because if there's only one way in and out, you're trapped if something happens you 
really need to think carefully about whether that's a trade, a risk that you're willing to take. Like what's happening in Lake Orho, Simon says people can assess the fire risk on their own properties. You can do things like clear a margin of flammable plants and trees from around your house, treat driveways like a potential firebreak, and take stock of what kind of bush you and your neighbours live in. There's things you can do, um, but you have to think about that first. And it's always easier to do that before you move in because it gets a lot more expensive to retrofit it after the fact. You know, we a lot of times, and, and we're guilty of this as well, that we were going doing our research and we were going to talk to people about what they could be doing to increase their mitigations or their risk reduction. And what we realized that by going into these communities and talking to people, we were really coming into them too late, that we're asking people to make these changes. But, you know, the subdivision was already planned. The roads were built. The house is built. The trees have been planted. And at that stage, it's really difficult for people to change things. So there's a lot of practical barriers for people to overcome. So it really needs to be something that we get in early and get and think about what's going to be happening down the line in 30, 50 years with the climate when we're choosing to build and when we're choosing our, you know, how our cities are growing out and in, closer into vegetation. It's really going to have to come down to becoming like people are in Australia and in parts of the US or Canada where it just becomes something that is ingrained in what you do that you have in back of mind that, oh, it's this time of year, it's it's getting to be pretty dry. There's a lot of dry vegetation around. I better not light that fire. I better not maybe use that angle grinder. I should pay attention to what I'm doing a little bit more carefully. Back to pyrogeography professor David Bowman. So there's a whole sort of conversation that's going to have to happen in New Zealand about, you know, landscape design, the place of fire, how you're going to manage your plantations, which are, you know, an enormous economic asset, um, and, and and the native vegetation too will become increasingly vulnerable um, as it becomes drought stressed, and so then you lose plantations or you lose native vegetation on steep slopes. You're going to have erosion issues. You'll have more landslips, destruction of infrastructure, roads, and so on. So there's going to be a whole big learning curve adaptation pathway, which is going to be quite rugged, I think, for, for, for New Zealand because, because you, you know, at least Australians, they know about bushfires and, you know, it's sort of, you know, they're aware bushfires part of being Australia. But, but I think for New Zealand, it's going to be a bit harder because it's like everyone's going to have to start wrapping their mind around this new new natural hazard, which which is sort of, you know, you're very good at obviously earthquakes and things, you know, you're fantastically and floods, you know, fantastically adaptable people. I'm not concerned about that. It's just that it's, you know, damn, it's another thing we've got to got to start factoring in as the climate changes. One of the nice things about adaptation is that it makes people who are living in country love that country so much more. And, you know, that's really a, a thing, you know, so sort of a, in the Aboriginal way, you know, we talk to country, we care for country and country will care for us. And that's this whole dialogue of humans being involved with the non-human world, the living world, such an important principle that so many Indigenous societies have. And that's something that we're going to be doing a lot more of. I have spoken a few times about the fire in different, you know, forums and in the media. And I 
I relish the opportunity to do that. I mean, I'm not, you know, this is my my comfortable place, but I feel that if I can help other people think about these things and get awareness of it, then, you know, what we went through is actually helping others. And I think that's really important. That's it for today. I'm Sarah Robson. The detail is supported by the Public Interest Journalism Fund. Today's episode was engineered by William Saunders and produced by me, Tom Kitchen and Bonnie Harrison. And thanks to David Bowman, Viv Campbell-Smith and Simon Wagner. Kakite anō.